Welcome to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Seta. Illuminate is back with our first episode of the new year. I apologize for the delay in releasing this episode. Shortly after recording this podcast, I unfortunately had a nasty bout with bronchitis through the holidays that lasted for over a month. The good news is we have several great episodes in the works, and we hope to get caught back up on our monthly release schedule. In the meantime, if you enjoy the audio version of this podcast, I'm excited to announce my new YouTube channel. While we don't have video content for every episode, we do have our Illuminate Live event from Miami in its entirety, along with clips from some popular interviews. Be sure to subscribe today on YouTube. Just search at Dr. Seta. That's D-R-C-E-T-T-A. As always, thanks so much for your continued support, and please enjoy this new episode. And this is not a question of the OSO industry. I am questioning, like all of us should do, the future cash flows of any company we invest in. You know, if a startup or a private company came to you and said, I want you to invest a million dollars in my company, what steps would you take to make that decision? I'm Dr. Chris Seta, and I'm shining a light on the innovators of our profession. Welcome to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. today's show, my guest is Dr. Bill Lehman. Let's face it, as orthodontists, we tend to be a competitive bunch. Most orthodontists don't harbor the typical fears in business, such as the fear of risk, fear of failure, or even the fear of change. However, almost all of us are susceptible to a particularly surreptitious fear the dreaded fear of missing out, aka FOMO. Perhaps it's the rigorous journey to become an orthodontist that self-selects for our competitive nature. In that light, let's consider some issues facing orthodontists today. Should we take advantage of 3D printing and make our own clear aligners and appliances in-house? Or should we outsource to a manufacturer such as Invisalign? Another hotly debated topic is should we continue to be practice owners or should we sell our businesses to private equity-backed groups, what have become known as orthodontic service organizations or simply OSOs? Today, I'm thrilled to shine a light on an innovator that truly cares about our specialty and giving back to the profession. Dr. Bill Lehman practices in sunny Clearwater, Florida, not far from me in St. Petersburg. Not only is Bill an orthodontist, but he went on to earn an MBA degree from UPenn's Wharton School of Business. Bill is gifted with a mathematical mindset and has applied his business school acumen to help orthodontists understand complex business decisions in, well, simply put, layman's terms. As you'll hear on today's episode, Bill will break down some important decisions facing orthodontists today, attempting to remove the FOMO from the equation and being as non-biased and objective as possible. Bill will explain his make-buy decision to assess the actual costs of making clear aligners in-house. Also, Bill will reveal a keep-sell analysis if you're considering selling your practice to an OSO, which many might find, well, illuminating. 
Well, welcome to the podcast, Bill. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me, Chris. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Why don't you tell everyone where we're at? We're in St. Petersburg, Florida. Beautiful weather here in December. We're in a uh, beautiful studio that Chris secured and sounds awesome. Chris has been great on helping me understand all the dynamics of this and uh, really excited to share what I can with you. Yeah. Honored to have you on the podcast. You are the first orthodontist from the Tampa Bay area. I made Tampa Bay my home five years ago. This is the second podcast we've actually recorded from St. Petersburg. Tito Norris came down in season one. We did an episode together from my apartment complex. But today we are in Coastal Creative Studios. I'm super excited. This is our first podcast episode that we've done in an actual studio. A lot of them have been in conference rooms at hotels. I've tried to record a couple on uh, roofs of hotels and gotten booted off. (laughs) Uh, But we have a nice controlled environment today. And uh, why don't you tell everyone what we're drinking? Today we're drinking a non-alcoholic beverage. It is called Seedlip. It's a distilled botanical. Uh, it's, It's made just like gin, except it doesn't have any alcohol content. We're here on a Sunday morning, so it's a nice yeah. piece for us to have. Uh, it was first developed back in 2015 in London with somebody who was just looking for a non-alcoholic option that just didn't have a bunch of sugary juices in it. And I was introduced to it. My wife and my family and I, we used to travel over to a Four Seasons in a city called Hampshire. And I was just asking for something. You know, I really don't want an alcoholic drink. You have something different that isn't like orange juice or grape juice or some mix of a kid's drink. And they brought this out. They said it was brand new. This was the summer of 2016. And ever since we've loved just playing with it, you know, working with it. There's a spicy, there's a citrus, there's an herbal, and it's just a great piece to use when alcohol just won't work at that time. I have to say, I love it. I have had the seed lip citrus before. You brought the whole line today, which I'm excited about. Seed lip is spelled S-E-E-D-L-I-P for those that might want to look it up. I was mentioning to Bill earlier that I think zero ABV or spirit-free cocktails (laughs) are sort of like a new trend, I think, for 2023. And, you know, it's different than what you might consider a mocktail. Like you were mentioning, Bill, mocktails to me are just like it's trying to be a cocktail, but they substitute a lot of syrups and sugars, which you get, you know, the calories and, and, you know, spiking your glycemic index, all the stuff that you probably don't want. So I like that you're getting more flavor, if you will. Uh, you can have it with a nice soda. I think we, you paired this nicely with San Pellegrino today. And that was the thing is that I didn't want to drink soda. I didn't want to drink just plain water. And all I was left with was Pellegrino and some other options, but nothing yeah. that really bit. Even tonic has a sugar content and the ability to have something that has a little pizzazz. You can dress it up a little bit. You can play with it a little bit. It's just fun. That's why I wanted to introduce it to you. So, and thank, thank you. you. Yeah, I'm going to dub this the free spirit. How about that? I like that. <laughs> so, Bill, I'm super excited to have you on the podcast today. Uh, one of the main reasons is you have a degree from Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. And we're going to be diving into a lot of interesting topics, whether to do aligners in-house or maybe to outsource. We're going to talk about selling your practice to an OSO or whether it's better to keep it. And uh, what you're really good at, I think, is taking some of these uh, economic principles and breaking them down into layman's terms, if you will. (laughs) So uh, I can't wait to learn more about it. But before we do that, I'd love to learn more about you. And I understand you grew up in Virginia. Is that correct? My backstory, I grew up originally in Amelia, Virginia, a little small town west of Richmond. My mother was a nurse. My father worked, really was the store manager for the farm co-op 
essentially the the one store in town that had all the equipment, all the feed, all the gasoline, everything. Hmm. So a lot of my jobs growing up revolved around that type of work, you know, either working in the warehouse, loading bags in the summer. My first real job was in a chicken house, trying to raise money to get a motorcycle and (laughs) ride around all the fields that were out there. Yeah. And um, yeah, I ended up leaving Virginia when I was 18 and uh, went off to college. So So what's a, a chicken house like? Chicken house is pretty nasty. It smells like ammonia. Uh, you got to hang fans. You got to walk around picking up dead little chickens and just oh, keep the geez. place sanitary. So I was that was my job as a 13-year-old in a white t-shirt and blue jeans just walking around trying to figure it out. So, But I did really get that motorcycle and nice. only wrecked it twice, but it was fun. Oh, what, what type of bike was it? <laughs> I had a little XR80, just uh-huh. a little Honda, a little fun little bike to ride around on, do jumps and just, you know, just ride around the backwoods and logging roads and fields and stuff. So it was a a fun time. And I believe you went into the military, right? I did. After college, um, I went to the Citadel for college, which is in Charleston, South Carolina, Mm -hmm. spent four years there. And while I was there, I ended up getting an army scholarship for a couple of years to help defray the costs of college for my parents. Uh And while at the Citadel, just really loved learning more about myself, about discipline, about hard times. And once I signed up for the military, I wanted to go do something really beneficial. So I ended up being an artillery officer, going out to Fort Sill, Oklahoma for a few months. And then really what ended up happening was the orders I got, I originally was going to go out to Fort Shafter HI. And at the time, at 21 years old, I didn't know what HI was. I mean, this was the first time I'd ever really left Charleston or Virginia. I was figuring out what country it was and, you know, kind of foolish me, it was Hawaii. <laughs> And I really, you know, I really wanted to be at Fort Bragg. I was kind of getting interested in now my wife, Andrea, who was still at the College of Charleston in Charleston, South Carolina, and ended up making a switch with a person who was from California and ended up getting to Fort Bragg. And then once I got to Fort Bragg, I reached out to some Citadel graduates and ended up getting this position at the 82nd Airborne Division, where I was a fire support officer. Essentially, what that job is, is you're attached to an infantry company commander and you're in charge of the indirect fires, the artillery, the Spectre. It's a, essentially a C-130 gunship that allows you know artillery and major weaponry to be on target immediately. Enjoyed that for a couple of years and, and then went to dental school. The 82nd Airborne, that was a paratrooper. Right? It is. It's a, it's a fully airborne unit. It's one of the only fully airborne divisions. If not, I think it's the only fully airborne division. There are other airborne units in Vicenza, Italy. I mean, this was back in the mid-90s. There was yeah. one in Alaska. Uh, an airborne battalion there. But uh, no, it's the only full airborne division outside of special operations, range of battalions, things like okay. that. But it's the only conventional And this is a pretty division. famous division, I think, because I was researching it a little bit. Saw combat in maybe like World War II, I believe, and some other theaters, right? Well, the 82nd Airborne, you know, the Band of Brothers is an amazing TV show based on the 101st, back when they were an airborne unit also. In the 82nd Airborne Division, Captain Gavin, back at the day, ended up being the commander of the 82nd Airborne Division, they were huge impacts on Sicily, the island outside mm. of Italy. There was an invasion there. Operation Market Garden in Holland, Nijmegen. There's all the major World War II conflicts have drop zones. And St. Mary Gleese was a huge one. That was the 82nd Airborne part of it that dropped into St. Mary Gleese. If you've ever been to Normandy inside St. Mary Gleese, uh, you can see the paratroopers still hanging on the church. Mm. They have kind of a rendition there. They have the Airborne oh, wow. Museum. And for my 40th birthday, we went to Normandy and to be in St. Mary Gleese and to see a plaque dedicated to the paratroopers that came and saved the town from the German occupation, 
it was Alpha Company, first of the 505th Parachute Infantry Regiment, which is the company I worked with. So that was wow. really just humbling to mm-hmm. see that and to feel that depth of history and that opportunity to serve. I'd like to ask you a couple questions about the Citadel, just because I think it's so different than probably most of us with our more academic-based college experience, because there's only, from my understanding, maybe five or six military academies in the U.S., right? West Point, Annapolis, and then there's maybe four, are they considered private like the Citadel? Or So most of them are public institutions. Okay. So there's, there's academies. Um, there's West Point for the Army, mm-hmm. U.S. Naval Academy, obviously, the Air Force Academy. There's a Coast Guard Academy. In Connecticut, I believe, the Marines come out of the Naval Academy or West Point. Interesting. We had a Marine Corps general that ran the Citadel who actually had gone to West Point and was able to get the Globe and Anchor out of West Point to go into the Marines. Hmm. And there's the Citadel. Texas A&M still has a pretty good core. Norwich, North Georgia Military College, VMI. I'm sure there's others, but those are the ones that I'm most familiar with mm-hmm. based on the training that I did. So the Citadel is a, like some of these other schools, a 100% military involvement. So mm-hmm. Every undergrad student at the Citadel matriculates into a full military system. And it's based on squads and platoons, companies, and then there's the regiment itself. And it is 24 hours a day. Wow. I find it just fascinating just because it's so different from my uh, college days. I imagine at some point you've jumped out of a plane. I did. jumped out of uh, quite a few planes, actually. I started that adventure after my freshman year at the Citadel. I did something called pre-airborne, which you have to essentially try out. And then they pay for a slot for you to go to airborne school in the military. Because at this point, you're still a cadet. There has to be some sort of vetting process. So they don't send a bunch of people and then half of them don't make it or fall out. So between the knob PT, the freshman PT, physical training, and all of the pre-airborne stuff, it was pretty much five days a week that I was out there preparing myself physically for this adventure. Probably over-prepared, but it's good because we had about 100% completion rate at the airborne school. And... (laughs) So two things at airborne school. Number one, I had never left the Eastern Standard Time my entire life. Hmm. So you have one week of ground week, one week of tower week, and then one week of jump week. So airborne school is a three-week adventure. When I got on that airplane in Fort Benning, Georgia, it was a C-130, huge prop plane. Once I got on that airplane, and when I jumped out, we landed in what's called Friar Drop Zone. And that's in Alabama. So that was the first time I'd ever left Eastern time was landing in Alabama. <laughs> Years later, in the 82nd Airborne, we did what's called an EDRI. EDRI is an emergency deployment reaction exercise. Hmm. And so we did an EDRI with Pope Air Force Base, where the birds had, you know, the C-141s at that time, had to get ready, get ready for us. And then we actually got on the airplane, because typically we'd put our parachutes on before we got on the airplane. But in this case, we put our parachutes on over Nevada. So we left Fort Bragg, mm. North Carolina, put our parachutes on, 130 of your closest friends in a sardine can, trying to put these parachutes on under red lights because you didn't want to, you couldn't have like bright lights Interesting. There. Okay. And, and then we jumped into California and that was the first time I'd ever been in Pacific time. Wow. So. Wild story. I mean, I don't think I could jump out of an airplane. Does anyone panic up there or just get used to it? So there's a good story about that. My first jump, Sergeant Airborne's would walk across your legs because you're kind of knee to knee. So they just walk across and count off 10. You, you know what your stick is, but they're still counting off. So the guy across from me looked old as dirt. He was probably 30 because I was mm-hmm. 18 at the time, mm-hmm. 19. He was a chaplain. He was a captain, probably got assigned to an airborne unit or just wanted to do it. And I looked at him and he turned as white as the shirt you're wearing. He wow. was petrified. Because he realized he was going to be going number one jumper on the second round. 
And that's kind of scary with a C-130 because you have to essentially, you have a, a line that comes out of your parachute. It's a static line jump. At airborne school, you're at 1,250 feet. In most units, you jump at 800 feet. Combat jumps are at 500 feet. I never made one of those, but that's what I learned, the different levels. Mm -hmm. It minimizes the time in the air. And what you had to do on a C-130 is you had to hand your static line to the safety, who's the person that controls those lines as the paratroopers exit the aircraft. And you put your hands on the side of the aircraft with the door open and you hang your boot off the side <laughs> because you have to actually jump up and out 30 inches to get into the prop blast to take you away and deploy your parachute. My heart's racing just hearing this story. It's kind of fun. <laughs> and so once I realized he was not really interested in this, you know, because it's much easier being in the back and just following people out the door than to stand there for 30 seconds and watch the ground go by and watch the drop zone come towards you. And I mean, that's, that can be a rush or it can be an absolutely terrifying feeling. And so I said, look, you go number 10 on stick one, now go number one on stick two. And that's what we did. So, you know, there's a whole rigmarole, there's a whole procedure, outboard personnel stand up, inboard personnel hook up. I mean, there's a whole Mm -hmm. series of events that happens every single time you do a static line jump and the jump master is in charge of that. So he got up he went out the door. We're all cheering because it was the first jump and we were up. And as soon as I get up there, I'm stoked. Like I said, I'm 19. I just finished my knob year at the Citadel. I'm kind of full in piss and fire. I'm just like, whatever, ready to go. Pretty much do whatever I want. And invincible, of course, at 19. And I stand there and I put my hands in the door and there's an Air Force guy and I can hear him kind of screaming at me. He's like talking trash. And so I kind of start screaming back at him. And on the back end of the door, there's a red light and a green light, Hmm. you know, so that red light's on. And then once the pilots know that they're over the drop zone, they click the light and it goes to a green light. Mm -hmm. And so I jump. As soon as it's green, I'm gone. And when we hit the ground, my buddy Rodriguez, who was the one beside me, he started laughing. You know, some people take stress differently. They laugh, they cry, they get quiet, they freak out, they go nuts. Well, he was laughing hysterically. And I thought, well, you know, hey, wasn't that great? Wasn't that awesome? That was a first jump. That was so cool. He goes, yes, and he said, you and the other guy were screaming so much. You were being what's called gaudy. You know, you were being just over much. You probably should have kept your mouth shut. You were kind of outside your rank and everything. Yeah. And he said the uh, jump master was lined up behind you, ready to kick you as soon as the green light came on. But you jumped <laughs> and he almost fell out of the airplane. Oh, wow. so that was, that was pretty funny. Wow. That was my first jump. And then my very last jump right before I left the 82nd to go to um, dental school, I came out of the airplane and there's a feeling after you've done a number of these jumps where your legs just have this like dead feeling. They're just kind of hanging. You know mm. that, but you're in the air and you're like, my legs don't feel the same. So I realized I was standing on top because you go out, it's like you alternate because when you do a mass tactical exit, it's about 120, 130 people go out of the airplane and you go out, ding, 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 ding. But sometimes you go out at the same time. Mm. And so I came out and the guy that came out on the other side, his parachute opened and I was standing on top of it. Oh, And wow. so I look up and my parachute is deployed, but it's starting to waver because there's no weight because I'm standing on this other guy's mm-hmm. parachute. I just start swimming. And luckily I started sliding down his parachute and mine caught air again. Oh, so, wow. Uh, scary that was, that was a, but that was my last jump. So that was, <laughs> I haven't jumped since. Not that I'm scared of it. I just, yeah. I've had a mortgage up till now. So my wife won't let me. <laughs> so what made you decide to go to dental school? I always wanted to go to dental school. I had a grandfather. I had two uncles, one uncle in DC. I had an uncle who was in the Navy, uh, who was a dentist, prosthodontist. I had a grandfather who actually started the periodontal program at MUSC. Oh wow! And 
you know, those were my mentors growing up. I mean, my father was a huge mentor. I just, you know, working a farm store was not going to work for me. You know, and not that it was bad, not that anything good. Just right. I realized that wasn't going to be as fulfilling for me as it was for him. Mm-hmm. And he was excellent at it. I wanted to do something in the sciences. I loved the biology of it. I was a biology major in college. And I just wanted to pursue that. But I also, you know, I wanted to pay for college and also, you know, get a little bit of uh, adrenaline out. You, know, you work some of that testosterone out before I went to dental school. There you go. So my grandfather was a huge mentor of mine because he had done a couple things in his career that were very groundbreaking. Number one, he had gone to Temple, uh, graduated in 1950. After World War II, he worked in a small town outside of Philadelphia, Sauterton, was from Wilkes-Barre, originally in the middle. And when a lot of the doctors were called up for the Korean War, he was seeing patients from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day to try to cover those guys that were gone. And once they all got back, he was a little worn out and ended up joining the public health service. Through the public health service, he went into periodontics. Uh, he trained with Ramford and Ash up in uh, Michigan. Mm. So excellent training. I think we've all heard of those guys through dental yeah. school. And then worked at NIH. One of the things he studied was, it was funny because it was actually, it's a question that's on our part two of our national boards, you know, how many millimeters a day does the gingival heal? And he's the one that did that study. Oh, you know, he found that you yeah. know, the normal skin keratinized tissue is one millimeter in the, in the human mouth, the mucosa is two millimeters. And he had done all those studies and actually have his original SEMs and his original bound thesis on that. So that was always a big piece for me. And then on the science side, but then on the you know humanity side, he was at Governor's Island outside of New York and realized that there was a lot of research being done on the effects of fluoride on teeth, you mm-hmm. know, how it reduced the caries incidence, things like that. And so he actually wanted to treat the children in the clinics that he ran there. And they said, no. And he's like, well, what if I do this project? They're like, okay. And so he actually created this project and found that the caries reduction in children using these different fluoride treatments was dramatic. I mean, just dramatic, as we all know now. Right. And so he was one of the ones that did that type of research. So he was always a huge mentor for leading change and trying to do the right thing, but at the same time help others. Now, I don't know too much about the Medical University of South Carolina, but I don't believe they had an ortho program until maybe 12 years ago. Is that right? I graduated there in 2001, and they did not have one when I graduated. So I would have loved to have stayed in Charleston. That would have been fantastic if there wasn't anything there. Did you want to go into perio, or you thought about ortho? So I matched with ortho December of my senior year. I let my grandfather know, and he was really disappointed. He asked me why I was getting out of dentistry. (laughs) Jeez. Was he serious? No, I mean, it was a joke. It was a good joke. But um, I think he held out going into Perio, but I think he was just excited that I was in the game. Mm-hmm. You know, I was doing something that was important. I was doing something that honored him and that hopefully made him proud. But unfortunately, he passed away February of my senior year, so never got oh. to see me graduate. So that was that was always a challenge. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. So you ended up going, I believe, to Vanderbilt for your ortho program. I did. I started Vanderbilt in July of 2001. And we were there for three years. Trained under Harry Legan and a guy named Scott Conley were the two full-times there. Had a number of part-times that were really helpful. We were actually in the Department of Surgery. There was no dental school. It was just us and the oral surgeons. And so having the exposure to all the sleep apnea training that we had back in the early 2000s, having exposure to all of the surgical modalities and things of that nature, I think really helped me understand a lot more about the opportunities that we have. You know, now having to learn functional appliances in my private practice that 
that took a little bit of time and <laughs> had a lot of helpful people at different labs giving me advice on things that they see, trends they see. Um, there really weren't webinars per se back then. So I would try to soak up as much of that as I could. And there were four of us there and I'm still close friends with most of them today. That's wonderful. I think I mentioned to you that I visited the program a couple of times. I even did a one week externship. I think you had already graduated when I did the externship, but we may or may not have overlapped. And I definitely got to meet Dr. Legan, Dr. Conley. And I believe Kim was there at the same time, right? Yeah, Dr. Kim, he, he and I were on the same team. I mean, he's an absolute amazing individual that I had the fortunate opportunity to get to know. If you've seen the show, The Last Dance with Michael Jordan, mm-hmm. and I believe it's James Worthy says that I was better than Michael Jordan for about two weeks. Um, it took about two weeks and then Keybone was like, okay, I got all the ortho stuff. <laughs> now I was like, <laughs> okay, I'm glad I could help you a little bit. So he was such an amazing person, got to know his family, his young kids at the time. I was blessed to know him and to still know him. I remember at the time he was doing stuff with Tads and this had to be like 2003 or 2004. So, I mean, that was super cutting edge back then. It was. He was doing a lot with Tads. He was also doing, I remember a lot of the research he was working on was midline distraction. And because of his board certification and TMJ dysfunctions, the effect on the TMJ of the mandibular midline distraction and the rotational effects on the condyle and what that did to the patient. I thought that was pretty amazing what he was doing. When we come back, in just a moment, how Bill went on to earn his MBA from the Wharton School of Business and his make-by-cost analysis for in-house aligners. Stay with us. You're listening to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. Kind support for this podcast comes from KLO and Stride. What if you came in Monday morning, looked at the schedule, and every appointment was as simple as an aligner visit? It could be. Stride Custom Braces by Kale Owen help you leverage your investment in digital workflow to grow your practice and find more hours in your day. How about 35% fewer visits? Stride gives precise control in all three orders using a kit of 27 patented brackets with advanced AI software and true straight wire mechanics. Available in metal, clear, and now self-ligating. To request a demo, go to kaleowenortho.com and receive a free case when mentioning this podcast. Welcome back to our conversation with Dr. Bill Lehman. So how'd you end up here in Clearwater? My wife grew up here. Like a lot of us in the Southeast, you know, our wife and babysitters were better, you know, her parents, um... Where I grew up in Amelia, they had two dentists in the whole county, and they were married. So orthodontics in Amelia, Virginia was not going to be a, a big deal. So and it was between going to Richmond, the biggest city near my family, or coming down here to Tampa Clearwater area. All we had to do was come down here in January, and that was an easy decision. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. That resonates with me, for sure. <laughs> now, did you set up shop right away, or did you associate down here? So I met with a few doctors. I was interested in possibly working for somebody. What I did, and I'd recommend this to anybody, parallel, I was investigating options to set up my own practice Mm -hmm. while I interviewed with other doctors. Mm -hmm. And what ended up happening was none of those opportunities really worked out where I would join them. And so I did end up taking a job in Tampa, more of a corporate type job, uh, which is about 45 minutes away from my office, while I was building and developing my, my own office. So essentially, I started from scratch. And for the first two years, I worked for a 
a corporate entity to kind of help make ends meet. Gotcha. Now, the name of your practice is Straighten Up Orthodontics. Yes. How'd you come up with that? Kind of military. Yeah. Um, I just thought it would be catchy. I thought mm-hmm. it'd be fun. Uh, there's a few things there. I guess when I first opened, people would ask me that. And I think if you say layman orthodontics real fast, it might sound like lame orthodontics. So I <laughs> thought Straighten Up might be a better choice there overall. So Yeah. No, I like it. I like the play on words. So when did you start your practice and how long have you been there at this point? So we started right when I graduated, 2004. Well, we started renovating the property right when I graduated. It mm-hmm. took us about 11 months to get the property where we wanted it. And then we opened up for business. I was working out of local offices, you know, seeing the patients of people I knew and people my wife knew. Gosh, I've been there 17 years. Wow. That's really- Time flies, right? Really challenging when I think about it that way. It's been a real fun ride. I've met so many amazing people and we've made many renovations to the office because of the office itself and where it's located in Clearwater, it's really on the main drag going out to the beaches. And I really couldn't change that much because I had a lot of plans for the office, but if I had changed more than 16,000 a year, I would have lost a lot of the grandfathering in. I would have lost my signs. Hmm. I would have had to have added an underground retention pond. I would have had to have added like 50 grand in landscaping or something. And and so we've kept it, but every year we've made nice improvements to it. So in my mind's eye, when I say 17 years, I immediately cycle through all the iterations mm-hmm. of what the practices look like and what we've done. Even over COVID, when we closed for about two months, uh, we were able to go inside and really freshen up a lot of stuff. So we tried to use that time effectively. I think more recently you decided to get an MBA. Is that right? I did. Eight years ago, 2014, I realized that I wanted to do more. I had met so many physicians. I had met a number of dentists that, you know, mid to late fifties and were a little disgruntled. And, Mm. you know, my uncle actually worked with the ADA on the transition policies. And he actually shared with me how a lot of the dentists he met didn't really know what they were going to do next. And I had wanted to do something like this. I had always wanted to pursue a business of that type. I, I had done businesses in ortho school, I had a business. In dental school, I had a business. So I had always been interested in that. I just didn't know how it was going to look. And Mm -hmm. so I started looking at different programs, talking to my wife about it. And she pretty much told me, if you're going to do this, you need to do it right. Don't go somewhere that happens to work. Go somewhere that's going to really be worth doing. And so I applied to a few programs and got into all of them, luckily. I remember getting into Yale and doing the interview up there, and it was like five degrees, and standing out there waiting for my rental car to go to the interview, and thought maybe this isn't going to work. Yeah. <laughs> got in luckily, but then once I got into the Wharton School in Philly, and the ability to just fly right up direct and go into class, and once I got in, it was it was kind of on. It yeah, was really fun. The very prestigious Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, I might add, right? And they make you earn it, which is good. <laughs> and that's usually consistently in maybe the top three business schools. I know that the rankings vary. It's number one in my book, but yeah. <laughs> I think internationally, it definitely lands in the top three or five. Yeah. And so you did this program back in 2015. This wasn't like a virtual education, correct? That you were taking the classes online. I think everything was done for the most part in person. Everything was classroom. And just so all the students would know that they owned you for the next two years, our first day of classes was Memorial Day. Oh, wow. 2015. And kind of termed that hell week a little bit because essentially it's just a deep dive for one week into 
managerial economics, accounting, and management. And you essentially are in class eight to five every day that week. And then homework assignments, group projects, meeting your group, understanding the dynamics, getting to know each other, all of that happens fairly rapidly. And from somebody who had never taken a business class, you know, being in class with engineers that run their own business, being in class with people from Goldman Sachs that are directors, you know, VPs, things of that nature, being in class with people that run the Carnegie Foundation and trying to learn from them was probably one of the best human experiences, one of the best that I've had, because the ability for the administrators to put together a class of 110 people where there wasn't strife, where there was only helping each other up, where there was only really the common good for each was probably the most impressive thing to me. That, is that they were able to yeah. put together a class of people like that. So I'm, I'm in a study group with a guy who was a civil engineer from China, and I just met him, you know, day one. He's in my study group. Your first two semesters, definitely, you are with this group. You do all your projects together. That's your wolf pack. That's, that's how you're getting through this together. It's kind of like your squad. Mm-hmm. And civil engineer from China, then a PhD in robotics, mathematics uh, at Buffalo, and now he's in school with us. So uh, having people like that, and then, like I said, me never having a business class, the learning curve was essentially straight up. Yeah, I mean, we don't get a lot of business exposure I don't in think orthodontic we get, residencies. I, we don't get a lot. We usually have somebody come in and maybe talk about their business. But, right. And that's something I'm trying to do right now. I'm on our fourth modules this coming Friday with the University of Florida. I'm, I'm working to take the residents there. I'm working to take them through accounting, management principles, funding of practices, and help them see some of the tools that they can have exposure to. Now, this is by no means the ability to have them perfect it, but everybody in this profession has more than enough intellectual capacity, 10 times the intellectual capacity to do these types of things. It's just the ability to have the exposure to the frameworks. Sure. And to clarify, you know, you were in the full degree seeking program, right? That you have a full MBA. Different than the more recent program that the AEO has come out with, which I heard is very good. I haven't taken it. I believe it's uh, Mastering the Business of Orthodontics, sort Um, of like a mini residency, if you will. I haven't taken it, but I mean, all the professors that are in it, uh, Christian Terevich is a close friend of mine. I've worked with him on a number of things. Uh, Stu Friedman is, I actually didn't take his class, but I know about him through Mm -hmm. classmates that did. And just a deep personal dive into motivations that he does in that class is pretty excellent. Now, the MBO program, I think, does an excellent job of doing that, of exposing people to these frameworks, exposing people to these thought patterns Mm -hmm. so that they can then deep dive as they want. Whereas the MBA program is a full degree seeking program with the ability to really completely develop all of the concepts that you would need to say, this is what I can do. And for us, flying up to Philadelphia every two weeks for two years, and then that five day piece uh, at the beginning, and then there's a couple others where it's three or four days. And being in class sometimes from 9 a.m. to 9 at night with a break for lunch and a break for dinner, and then having to kind of complete the projects. It was the mountain I wanted to climb. And that's part of what it was, is at 40 years old at the time, wanting to climb that mountain and, you know, seeing a successful piece on the other side. Yeah, it's quite the accomplishment. And I have to add, your son, I guess, was probably in junior high or high school at the time. He was in seventh and eighth grade at the time. Yeah. Sounds like your family, though, was very supportive of you flying up and pursuing this degree. Yes. Yeah, which is awesome. Without that, it wouldn't have been possible. Wonderful. 
So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast today was uh, to talk about some of these economic or business decisions because you do have this MBA and insight. And uh, one of the topics that you're known for is sort of evaluating in-house aligners, right? Should orthodontists outsource right. their manufacturing to companies like maybe Align or 3M? Or within the last couple of years, people are doing aligners in-house. Uh, ULab is certainly one company that has a software for people that would like to do it. What are some of your thoughts and recommendations on um, the decision to go in-house or not? The decision should be based on a few factors, in my opinion. Number one, cost is a factor, but not the factor. Okay. Number two, convenience for your patient is a pretty large factor when it comes to that. And third, the opportunity cost. The cost itself, you want to understand how much you're spending for a commodity. Not mm -hmm. a commodity necessarily, but for a piece of something. You know, we all want to do that. We don't want to spend oh, of course. $15 a box for gloves, but we may do that with aligners. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas there are alternative options. What I've seen, the question is, is what are all the factors that go into it? And then you might do a little cursory look. You might look at it, but then you're like, you know what? This is, forget it. It's not worth it. And, and that's fair. And it took me a while. I mean, I really dug down into the actual costs of making aligners versus buying them on the market because buying them on the market can be really tricky to compare oranges to oranges because of the way it's priced out. Mm -hmm. A lot of the aligner companies will give you a flat price and then you're not really sure exactly how many aligners you're getting for that. And you're always not really sure how many aligners it's going to take. So having that hedge, the ability to say, well, I can make as many as I want can be very comforting unless you go back and look at your actual data. You, know, mm -hmm. you can go back and see if you look at your last 100, 200 cases and determine, wow, I spent like $40 in a liner. You know, that seems a little bit much. Yeah. Or $28 in a liner or $29 in a liner. You know, maybe ULab has a better option for you. Mm -hmm. um, they've got a lot of great items out there now that have come out this year that help you not have to make everything yourself right there on the computer. They can offload some of that work for you, which is what I like. But making them in-house has a limit and it should have a limit because labor is the limiting piece on that. Hmm. So you can go in and say, you know how much your plastic is, Sendura, Atmos, Essex, Trutane, whatever you're using, you can figure out how much per piece of plastic. Great. You can kind of figure out your resin models. So the way we did it was I looked at 500 consecutive prints because SprintRay does a nice job of giving you a dashboard that can tell you exactly how big your prints were. Gotcha. And so my average model was about 14.1 milliliters. When I look at that, it lets me know if I divide that into a thousand milliliters, a liter resin, right. and then maybe give a little, maybe a couple of percent yield on that. I got a point where it was about 70 models per liter. So then you kind of know what your model cost is. And then you have to get a little bit creative because you want to find out, I'm using burrs, everything that's consumable. Sure. You want to make sure you account for that, even though it might be a quarter, it should still matter when you're actually doing this cost analysis. And then the yields. I mean, if anybody's ever had a print fail, and if you haven't, God bless you, but <laughs> I know I have, um, just yeah. things happen, you know, the tank, the platform, anything. And so you have to account for that. Mm -hmm. And so once you get all those items together, that's kind of your materials cost. Gotcha. The piece that it, when I talk to people sometimes, that's not truly understood as a labor cost, you know, because like, well, I just have my assistant do it. I'm paying them anyway. It's a fixed cost. And yes, you're right. If you're paying them anyway, and they have excess time, then that excess time can be made to use to make retainers or aligners or stuff like that. 
and what happens when they run out of time or they're overstressed or you're behind and now you're offloading to a much more expensive piece. Those are all the inputs that we use to help identify what somebody should be doing. Sure. As far as costs. Yeah. Now, convenience. The ability to have somebody come in on Monday of Thanksgiving break, college kid that has a couple crooked teeth, it's going to take like 10 trays. You know, you kind of know it's going to take 10 trays. You can put a couple attachments if you want to. If you do it in-house, you can have two or three of those ready for them the next day or that day, depending on your flow. Very Usually we don't try to do the same day. We try next day or the day after yeah. just from clinical flow from our office. Mm-hmm. And the ability to have that person satisfied, to have that patient-centric approach by being able to make them like that, I think is huge. And you don't have to give them all of them. You don't have to print 10. You could print two aligners and an attachment template, make it ready, get them going, wear them a week each, two weeks, whatever your protocol is, and just send them the balance in the mail. Mm-hmm. And so we've had so many opportunities to do that. And it really works very well to help us not lose time. That's the opportunity cost. Sure. So not lose time in the clinic that we have an appointment, we have an opening, we have something we could fill. We can now fill it because that time, once it goes away, it's gone. Forever. Yeah. I think that convenience option is wonderful for patients. If we can circle back to costs, you mentioned, you know, as far as like the prints, how there's resin involved and, you know, maybe changing the tanks out periodically and, you know, failed prints in your own hands. Can you give us like a ballpark on what it might cost per model? It's about $15. $15 per model. Yeah, okay. We use Apply Lab Works resin. Um, I got that from one of Eric Wu's lectures. Um, mm-hmm. He recommended it and I was like, that's amazing because the cost per liter is awesome. You know, the burrs that we use, the yields that we have. And so the two biggest inputs are the cost of resin. And so the cost of resin for us is $60 a liter, about 60, 72 with tax and shipping per liter. Whereas I used to have an Envision Tech Mm -hmm. and the cost per liter was like 310. And so that was a pretty big piece. And also the plastics that we use, we've tried many different plastics. We've found that I actually, when Zendura came out, I was like, that. Ah, that is really expensive. For me, it's worth it. Yeah. I've tried all the other plastics and I was always getting frustrated with my in-house aligners. And, oh, that's not working. That's not working. This one has been, it runs us about, I think, four, three fifty-four per sheet. But mm-hmm. um, people may have bigger discounts. I mean, this is kind of a general number, but it's been amazingly that much better. And so all of those inputs are labor inputs. You know, I have to take into account my labor. And what I pay my digital lab tech, which is a standalone position, and I do have her do quite a few other things. And one piece in the labor that I didn't bring up earlier is how long does it take to make it in your office? For us, it's about nine minutes. When you take into account all the steps of actually creating, you know, when I do the webinar and I do the speaking engagements, we talk about the subway operation system. And with subway, you can see them grab the bread, add the meat, add the cheese, blah, blah, blah. With aligners, it's not that linear. They do something, then they walk away. Then they do something, then they walk away and do something else. So you have to measure about 30 iterations of each step of it to give your office a good average and standard deviation of what it takes to do that. So then you can actually apply the labor cost to the cost of the aligner Makes sense. for your office. Gotcha. So in your hands, though, in your office, what would you say like per aligner? Do you have like an estimate on, on what it might cost? 15. About 15, which I think is great because we recently signed up for the Align subscription program. I think we're at the base tier, but it's around like 26 per aligner. So, I mean, that's a pretty big savings there. I thought so. Yeah. yeah. And you still have to wait for them, I believe. Oh, definitely. Yeah. You know, aligns pretty quick. I'd say maybe like two, two and a half week turnaround time. 
but still, if you want to get them that fast, next that's day. A, that's a long time. In, yeah. in, our, in, in our office, that feels, that would feel, we actually had that because I don't use a line anymore. And that was kind of scary. When it comes to a line, that's a little bit scary because you go from a platinum plus or something, you start dropping down to a silver and bronze. You're like, oh, what if this doesn't work out? And that's the fear. Yeah. That's a real fear mm-hmm. when people, you really kind of have six months to make that decision. Because once you start transitioning away, you almost need to find out pretty quickly or the pricing for the next six months might hurt you a little bit. And so I know that that's a real pain point in the industry when it comes to switching yeah. between different companies. You kind of need to make that decision in a month or two, uh, which can be a little bit scary. But if we do, we can do all the math and all of the prep work ahead of time so that the transition doesn't feel as scary, which is what we did. So, Bill, let me ask you this. I imagine there's an opportunity cost, right, especially for a small practice, that if you have a certain amount of team members in terms of your labor, certain amount of space, do you want to put that towards manufacturing your own aligners or possibly outsourcing, right? There's that decision you have to weigh, correct? That's a big part of the make-buy decision that's really personal. It's Mm -hmm. hard to really lecture on that. I've been out and about enough now. I've met a bunch of people that are doing full in-house aligners and some that do a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I have noticed that there was one practice I was speaking to where they had a room the size of a consult room that was dedicated with two employees to do in-house aligners. Mm. And no matter the volume of the aligners, you might be saving money. And accounting-wise, you very well are saving money. It's just, is that savings different than the demand you could be satisfying? For instance, if you're saving $20,000 a year off of traditional aligner companies by making it in-house, that's great, but could that room start one patient a month, which could probably be $60,000 in revenue. And so the delta between the revenue you could be creating with those same resources versus the money you're saving, that's the cost that we're talking about there. No, that makes sense. So maybe for people that are unsure which direction to go, do you have any recommendations or resources available for them? We've looked at this a bunch of different ways. And for our office dynamic, our office situation, the cost per square foot, the cost of labor in our local marketplace, we have a rule. If we need the appliances within a couple days, we'll do an attachment template and three aligners. And then we'll send them the balance if they have to leave or if they can't come back, whatever, if it's a quicker turnaround. Mm -hmm. Teachers on vacation, there's tons of examples we can come up with. You know, kids home from college. We live in Clearwater, Florida, so people may be going back up north and they just want to get started before they go up north. They don't want to wait five months until they get back. We can do all of that. So that's an important piece. Yeah. Two, cases themselves, quick finishes after ortho with brackets. It's very, very small cases that work out. If the... A liner series is less than five trays. The digital lab tech knows to just print them in-house. Mm-hmm. If it's five or more, just send them out. And so, yes, we could probably do six. We could probably do seven. We could have a an elastic a number that in August, send everything out. In October, you could probably do 10 or less. That gets confusing. That's a lot of moving parts for an office that has, as everybody else's offices, a lot of things going on. So to get a good, hard, fast rule of what you want your technicians to actually make is a great tip. Yeah. What you use, you've got to use what works for you. Identifying your costs is a great tip to be able to, and we have a great webinar on ULAB's website that goes into detail the way you can identify your costs. Knowing your costs 
just gives you better data for your decisions. And I was recently at a Wharton reunion, and when somebody that works for McKenzie made a comment in the audience, she said that we're seeing a lot of clients that are data-rich, insight-poor, and action-absent. And I thought that was really interesting, that in the corporate world, where really publicly traded companies, more than likely she's working with, still the consultants have that view. And so in your own small business or larger business, if you can make those changes and just start taking all of that information you have access to and learning from it, asking somebody about it, and then creating actions that are much more profitable for your company. One, because some of the companies out there now have shareholders, have private equity dollars, and they need that 21 to 22% internal rate of return. And it's just nice if you have a small little office to know what you're actually spending on what and whether that decision for that dollar makes sense. Sure. And to clarify something you said before, you said if it's five or fewer aligners, you would print in-house. I assume you're still using ULab. You're just having them print the aligners, correct? With the ULab ecosystem, which I think is tremendous, we have the opportunity to either one, create the case, print it Mm in-house, two, create the case, have ULab make the aligners for us, or three, create the case, print a few aligners, and then have them make the rest for us. Oh, gotcha. I love that. Very cool. And when we're really busy, or if it's a more comprehensive case, and I just don't have time to really set it up or to really play with it, they now launch this year U-Assist, where I can have orthodontists in South America that are being trained Hmm. by the U-Lab faculty to create the case for me. And then instead of having to go back and forth with them, that platform allows me to take what they did and make some final tweaks and then send it out. Okay. Because previously there were no technicians with ULab, like Align Technology has, There wasn't. Right? There, was okay. not a, there was not an outsourcing of the setup. But yeah. this year they've launched that, and it's been a, a huge help. That's great that they have the flexibility in, I think you use the term ecosystem, right? So I love the idea of being able to maybe print the first three or four aligners, get the patient through, uh, you know, take advantage of that time, start the case, and then ULab can ship the rest to them, or mm-hmm. to the office, I assume, right? That's right. Yeah. That's fantastic. For me, it's an evolution of the aligner ecosystem. All other companies have the original format where send it in, go back and forth. They mail it to you when they get it to you. This one with ULab, you've got those different tiers of opportunities that the orthodontist has to affect what needs to happen in their practice, which to me makes it much more patient centric instead of, I wouldn't say patient agnostic, but you know, the patient matters, but you're going to get them when you get them. Whereas this way, you've got a much bigger sliding scale of how you can help the patient. When we come back in just a moment, Bill reveals his keep-sell analysis for whether to sell your practice to a private equity-backed OSO and his recent experience using dental monitoring in his practice. Stay with us. You're listening to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. Kind support for this podcast also comes from Revere Partners. Looking to invest in cutting-edge technology in the orthodontic space? Look to Revere Partners, the first and only independent venture capital fund for the oral health industry. With a diverse mix of 75 renowned professionals, including orthodontists on its team, Revere has invested in 30-plus ortho and dental startups, 
generating strong returns for its investors for years. Revere even offers corporate services like technology evaluations and pilots for orthodontic and dental practices. The stock market, real estate, and crypto are clearly risky, so consider investing in startups through Revere. Learn more at reverepartnersvc.com. And we're back to our conversation with Dr. Bill Lehman. Bill, I'd like to transition here a little bit and talk about something that's pretty topical and timely in orthodontics, but the rise of DSOs and OSOs in orthodontics, private equity, Mm -hmm. buying up practices. I know you've done a little bit of research into this in terms of uh, using your background from Wharton, helping orthodontists with like a keep sell proposition, right? Is it worth holding on to your practice? Or is it worth that quote-unquote payday and selling your practice now? What are your thoughts on all this? The keep-sell decision is a very capricious discussion in our profession now. It has happened before, Mm -hmm. not to this scale, though. There's been management companies in the past. They've come. They've unraveled. So there's a lot of education on that, which is good. And I do believe that a a lot of the OSOs, I feel, have done a really nice job of learning from all of that. Once again, an evolution of the, of what's happening there. And I think for a lot of people, it is a, it's an excellent idea. The question I have is, do we as orthodontists have the tools that we need to truly make that decision? Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of the companies out there that I've spoken to, um, Apple White and Byers, McGill Hill, a few of them are doing an excellent job of educating their customers, their clients on whether this decision is right for them or not. I've really just wanted to dig into this. I, you know, I've had all this training from the private equity side, from how the returns look, from how the companies work when it comes to that type of thing. And when you go to sell a company, what you're selling are the future cash flows. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I wanted to look at a keep sell, because if you keep the practice, we can look at a few inputs. One, how much are you going to make in actual dollars that your family benefits from? from that what's called asset because that's what it is. And then if eventually in the future you sell that asset, what do those dollars look like when you bring all of those dollars back to today? It's a concept called the present value of money. You use discount rates, something called the weighted average cost of capital, and in my model I was able to work out all of those items so that if you have a practice that you're going to sell in 5, 10, 15 or some sort of terminal value that mm-hmm. you create for those cash flows based on some mathematics and finance. I think the person should know what that number is. Absolutely. Just as important, I believe that whoever is contemplating selling should also look at the selling of the practice under the same light, using a lot of the same tools that private equity uses and saying, okay, I'm going to make X percent of collections or whatever the compensation schedule looks like. And you know about how that's going to grow. You can model that out and you can bring those dollars back to today. You can look at the cash out that you get today. I mean, the cash out you get today is pretty easy from the company because that's the cash today. So those are already in present dollars. Then there's a equity split, either 60, 40, 70, 30, 80, 20, or inventive ways that uh, people are doing it because every situation is different. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the challenges with this model was I didn't want to introduce any bias to it whatsoever. I wanted to be as agnostic on keeping or selling as possible. Right. right. And I Which just wanted fantastic. to help build something that people can look at and go, okay, 
maybe some framework questions I can ask. And, you know, looking at the growth that the OSO is going to project, looking at the recapitalization of those dollars and the dollars you anticipate receiving, maybe questioning that quite a bit. And this is not a question of the OSO industry. I am questioning, like all of us should do, future cash flows of any company we invest in. You know, if a startup or a private company came to you and said, I want you to invest a million dollars in my company, what steps would you take to make that decision? That's really all the model is proposing. Mm -hmm. And so just like any Reuters or any stock analysis, you look at it, you get a proper weighted average cost of capital. Now that's gone up tremendously because the cost of debt has risen dramatically this year. Things like beta of what a healthcare practice looks like. So there's some, there's some room in there for discussion. But the good news is that a lot of those discussion areas, what the, what the beta is, what the cost of debt is, what the equity versus premium is, all of those things will be pretty similar for both decisions. So your discount rates are going to stay fairly aligned. Uh, the only thing that may change is the debt equity mix when it comes okay. to the company that is buying you versus maybe having your own practice. And then you want to question what they say their growth is going to be. Maybe not question it, but then have a best case scenario, have a middle and have a worst. Just like when you look at stocks, when Mm -hmm. you look at a regression analysis of stocks, they'll say, well, we think the stock is here today. We think it's either going to go up to 21, up to 18 or down to 12. You know, so same type of experiment that you're doing. And then based on that actual data Mm -hmm. um, that somebody can create for you. If you have a CFO for your practice, if you have an accountant, a CPA of some sort, there's avenues where you can get this information and have somebody help you. Then you can make a decision yourself based on your risk appetite on how that looks. And I'm not indifferent to the fact that I know that there are a lot of other personal factors that go into this. So that's why I wanted this model to be very, very much educational for our profession to help them see some things they can use to talk about this. Yeah. And to learn about this. Well, I think we as orthodontists, we are very susceptible to FOMO or the fear of missing out. And it seems like, well, all my friends and colleagues are selling to group practices. What am I missing here, right? And so I think to maybe look from an unbiased and more objectional standpoint makes a lot more sense. That was my goal, you know, because at first when I had met with some of them, some of the marketing techniques or some of the sales techniques really kind of turned me off. I got a little bit frustrated when I would see a large, bold number in bright yellow cell saying, you know, after your $2 million grossing practice, you're going to end up with 6.3 million in this many years. I'm like, you know, that's, (laughs) and that's just for the stock, right? That seemed wholly inaccurate because that is future dollars for one. That's not today's dollars. So in my mind, you know, there were some techniques out there that I questioned that really motivated me to, to dig into this a little bit more. And then as I dug into it, I realized that maybe I had a bias from my first, definitely had a bias from my first interaction. And I took a lot of time to bail that out and to really kind of get all that extra soggy water out of there. I spent a couple hours with one of my corporate valuation professors, Michael Roberts at the Wharton School, going over this actual model. And he's been really helping me see where, well, Bill, this might be a little little bias towards one way. And so we've really worked hard to eliminate as many of those as we can to yeah. give doctors the tool to really learn about their practice. And we did set it up to where hopefully some inputs can be placed in the model and they can have the ability to maybe put some of their numbers in and got to get an idea of what maybe their situation is. But it's by no means a, a perfect model. The only perfect model would be a, 
a one-on-one to really help somebody understand. But, um, but there will be a webinar that we release uh, in January that goes through what discount rates are, what cost of capital is, just for a background, a simple overview. Yeah. And then everything we're talking about now, I go through showing the actual spreadsheet and trying to help people understand what some of the inputs are that we're using. That webinar is going to be on your ortho coach. Wonderful. Yeah, no, I look forward to checking it out. You know, I'm curious, are any of the inputs related to like tax advantages to owning your own business? Because that's one of the best benefits, right? Because of the great diversity of that and how people exercise that, we did not even go there. And to me, okay. that was one of the biases is we're just looking at pure free cash flows okay. from owning your own practice uh, versus selling your practice. So what you do after that cash in different vehicles, different tax hedges, in the model, you decide whether you're in a married bracket, in a single bracket, you can change it year to year. Like if you know you're getting married in a couple of years, you can have single for the first few and then married after that. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest problems with that, that there's really no way to fix, but I acknowledge the fact that when you look at the sheet, it has the tax bracket is a 2021 tax bracket. So I built everything off of that. Mm-hmm. So of course, if that changes, the numbers change. Sure. The good news is, no, it's good news. It's like tennis. If the net's high or net's low, it's for both of you. So if the taxes change, it changes for the keep or the sell decision. Mm -hmm. And so that hopefully helps it a little bit understand that even though I know that that tax piece isn't perfect, which is why I didn't go deeper into the cash flows after that, the tax benefits of having that, Mm -hmm. because the tax platform itself is slightly unstable. Yeah. You mentioned personal reasons, right? To keep or sell. And just off the top of my head, some personal reasons might be reaching age of retirement, maybe just wanting to retire, health issues, wanting more free time in your life. You know, a lot of those probably weigh in too. And that's obviously hard to model. As many deals as there are being made, I'm sure there's just as many personal reasons, which is once again, why I do not want to come across as picking a side. That's the last thing I'm going to do is pick a side because I feel like that is extremely myopic on my part because mm-hmm. I don't know what's going on out there with people's lives, but, you know, focusing on giving somebody an education on maybe how to make that decision or the data that they can use to actually make that decision was my goal. But based on this model, which I find super fascinating that just, you know, looking at everything in a bubble, taking out some of these other maybe personal reasons, I believe you found that the model shows it might be better to keep the practice, right? Once again, it depends on the person. Most of the exercises I've done with people kind of working on it in their particular situations, keeping the practice has been financially looking like the better situation. Now, Hmm. the biggest factor in that is the person's risk appetite. As far as the dollars that they're going to invest, the debt position they're going into, Mm -hmm. the discipline on the cash out value dollars they receive, and that growing. I mean, if you have a $2 million practice and you get a check for 2.4 and after taxes and after transitions costs, you get maybe 1.6, something like that, whatever the number is that they'll have it in front of me. If you invest all that money, probably a really good idea. But if you spend half of it on toys, it just depends on that, you know, that personal piece. But on paper, the keep decision does look really good if that works for you. That's a big piece of this that I can never put in a financial model. So you mentioned you're doing a webinar at your ortho coach. Um, Correct. If other people would like to just plug their data into this model and possibly get more informed, can they reach out to you as well? Of course. I don't have the spreadsheet up where somebody can plug it in themselves. Mm -hmm. But if anybody wants to email me, contact me, get in touch with me, I'm happy to work with them. I mean, I don't have a financial license. I don't have a 
a CPA or an accounting license. So I would be just helping you as a fellow orthodontist with knowledge that I have. Awesome. Bill, another thing I'd love to touch on is you mentioned to me that you recently got into remote monitoring in your practice. Right. Tell us a little bit about that. Remote monitoring gives us the opportunity to, one, we've found that parents steer away from aligners a lot of times. And sometimes I feel like it's just they don't want something else to bug their kids about, Mm -hmm. like just something else like, oh my gosh. So remote monitoring, what we give the parent the opportunity to do is say, look, every week we'd like to get a scan. We'd like to keep up with it. We'd like to nudge them. We'd like to help you manage this. And we've seen an increase in our teen uh, aligner cases because of it. And so we feel like that's a great piece because, you know, there's a lot of research out there, a lot of great information on the share of chair for aligners is going up and the ability to be profitable from that is really tremendous. I mean, the, for us to have an aligner case, sometimes we may only see the patient four times in the office, maybe three that's really fantastic. But having this monitoring makes that possible. Something else that the monitoring helps us do, we're slowly phasing it in where we have dynamic scheduling. Uh, Dynamic scheduling for us means that if the monitoring itself and the AI, which essentially is an extra employee for us, gives us the ability to know when they're going to actually be at that second to last tray in their series, it can trigger them making an appointment. Now, we can call and make that appointment, or what we're also phasing in is we now use a company called Grayfinch as our PMS. We just switched over. The patient can actually go on the platform, on the hub, and make their own appointment. And that is something we're really developing. And it's still, we've only been a few months into it, so we're still working through a lot of the kinks as an office. I know that once we get that worked out for aligner cases, we're going to be able to do it for a whole plethora of other cases. Mm-hmm. The reason we're starting with aligner cases is because the backstop's easy. They just keep wearing the same tray. With brackets, with wires, those backstops can be a little more dangerous. Elastics, forces, you know, any anything that we use, sure. power chains, we kind of want to have a better backstop. So that's why we're not quite into the bracket side of it yet. But with aligners, we're phasing that in really nicely. We feel like that is going to offload a lot of appointments for the patients And that's what we tell patients. We ask them, would you like to do remote monitoring? You have to ask that because we don't want to assume that they all want to because some some people really want to come in and see you. Fine. We we don't want to push them away by any means. And at the same time, this is patient-centric. We're still at the office. You know, we still have patient hours. We still have the ability to see people. So it's not like we're going to go on remote monitoring and be in the office one day a week. We're still there. And we couch this as patients have the ability to not be there. And like I said, some patients do want to come see us and that's fine, but most don't, especially in that demographic. Um, They really don't. They've got other stuff to do. And we try to appreciate that. I think it's super cool. I love this concept of dynamic scheduling, especially if you can find that backstop in terms of the fixed appliance cases, you know, wouldn't it be great to schedule a patient, put them on remote monitoring and then, you know, not see them until that NITI wire finishes leveling and aligning, unless there's a problem like a broken bracket or something. If the AI could pick up on that, that we need to get them in sooner. Just a lot of possibilities there I can envision. We're doing that now a lot. The DM has the ability to show us wire passivity. And the way they do it, explained to me, is when they have two consecutive scans and nothing changes, then the wire is passive, which hmm. makes total sense. Yeah. And so that's when it would trigger them to, hey, come on in, you're ready for your next wire. Yeah. Very to me, cool. that just feels more intelligent scheduling instead of 
well, we didn't really have the choice before. You have to say, come back in so many weeks, you know, but then every lecture I think I've gone to in 20 years, it talks about mechanics. Somebody shows a case like a Damon or a self-ligating case where they disappeared for a year and came back and all their teeth were straight. I'm like, why don't we do that more often? (laughs) Well, now (laughs) we can because we're still monitoring them. Right. Whereas before that was kind of a one-off, but I've heard that story tons and tons of times at lectures. And I'm like, well, why can't we just do that? And because of the fear of losing track of the patient, well, that fear has gone away. Right. So at this point, you're just using dental monitoring on aligner patients. You have no, no, no. We we use them on all patients. Okay. Yeah, we're just doing the dynamic scheduling. Okay. Phasing in on aligner patients. Thanks for clarifying. Um, yep. But no, we're doing it on on every patient because even carrier motion appliances, it'll tell you when they're class one. Hmm. So now you're ready. To, you know, okay, come on back. You're ready for your switch to aligners or switch to brackets, whichever you prefer. Very cool. Yeah, it's great. And so, what does dental monitoring pick up on in terms of does it notice broken brackets? Definitely notices broken brackets. It definitely notices wire passivity. Okay. It notices if a pigtail on a steel tie is out. Hmm. It notices if an O tie is missing, if you have O ties. Oh, nice. It notices a wire, deflected wire. Sometimes in the nigh ties, you'll get that little dip if they ate something weird. Yes. Those are the main no, things that we see. Great. I'm sure yeah. they have a list of 100 things, but... Those are the things that we typically see that come up on our reports. Mm -hmm. Now, do you have a coordinator that checks all the monitoring for you? We do. We have one employee that's dedicated to keeping up with it. Every two days, they check that and either respond back to the patient and also give a list to the admin team if there's an SOS that needs to be or a comfort appointment that needs to be taken care of. And we have a backup that's trained and she'll do it about once every two weeks just to keep up on everything. Very cool. Well, Bill, I know we have to wrap up the podcast today. Before we do, I'd love to talk about a few of your hobbies. So I know you're into yoga and Pilates, which I think is super cool. Tennis, travel, some other things. What's your favorite? So, well, Pilates is great because, you know, what we do is such core based and, you know, being almost 50 years old, that core can start to, you know, it's not as, not as good as it was when I was in my (laughs) twenties. Let's say paratrooper running and pull-ups and all day, but, um, Definitely doing my best to keep it as good as I can, as healthy as I can. And Pilates really does that on a, on a really good level. Mm-hmm. And so I think that helps practice longevity. I think that helps just enjoying the practice of orthodontics. Um, so that's fun, but functional. Yeah. We love to travel. My wife and I, my son, he's in college now, so he doesn't travel with us as much, but we love getting around. And one of the best things we love doing is every time we travel to a different place, doing a cooking class, oh, you know, so just, cool. just getting into the culture. You get to learn about it. You get to meet new people and you get to meet people that are creating these classes. Like even New Orleans, our son's in Tulane. We've done classes there. Uh, some of our favorites, we had a cooking class with a Druze family in Northern Israel and the ability for my wife and son and I to be in their home and see their beautiful view and just their beautiful life and to have the food that they make for their family is fantastic. We were in a apartment building in Barcelona across from the main market in Barcelona where the used to have a monastery right there and go over to the market. You can see all the different foods. You source everything, go back to his place. And there's about 10 of us in that group and, you know, make the tomato bread, made a huge paella. It's just fun doing that. We always love doing that. I'm getting hungry just listening (laughs) to these stories. (laughs) So, Bill, if people want to get in touch with you to learn more about the keep-sell decision for OSOs or possibly about whether to do in-house aligners, what's the best way of them getting in touch with you? Do you have an email or 
Best way is, well, there's a few ways. There's Dr. Bill, D-R-B-I-L-L, at S as in straighten, U as in uportho.com. Happy to field any questions you have and hop on a call if you want. I'm on Facebook. I do a lot on Facebook with trying to participate in conversations where I feel like I can help. Yeah, I look forward to giving back to the profession. It's been so good to me. And I understand you've had some upcoming ULAB talks too. Is that correct? We have a few that will probably be scheduled. They're not scheduled yet in the spring. Uh, the next one that I have scheduled is the Friday before the AAO in Chicago. They're doing a workshop. The AAO is doing a workshop. And so we'll be going over some of the make-by decision pieces there, some of the evolution of things I'm learning, meeting with a lot of offices, and I believe dental monitoring. I'll be talking a little bit about the economics of that, of the dynamic scheduling, and mm-hmm. of why I chose to go with that platform on that day also. Very, very cool. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Chris. Bill, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Cheers to you, my friend. Thank you. That's all for this episode of the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. If you're a fan of the show, be sure to subscribe or follow Illuminate on your favorite podcast app. Also, I'd appreciate if you could leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And please check out my new YouTube channel for video of some Illuminate episodes. Simply search the handle at Dr. Setta. That's D-R-C-E-T-T-A. A very special thanks to our sponsors for this episode. That's KLO and Stride Custom Braces and Revere Partners. As always, this podcast would not be possible without the Illuminate team. That's Skylar Adler on the mixing console and Tom O'Grady on the Fender Rhodes electric piano. Thanks so much for listening to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. To hear exclusive outtakes, suggest a guest, or sponsor an episode, head over to IlluminateOrthoPodcast.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Chris Setta, signing off. <laughs>